Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Donna Emile, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Justin Barad, a pediatric orthopedic surgeon who is also founder and CEO of OsoVR, a surgical training platform using the latest in virtual reality technology. The company has seen a spike in business during the pandemic, and this fall it announced a $14 million round of funding led by the investment arm of Kaiser Permanente. Dr. Barad has a degree in bioengineering from UC Berkeley and earned his MD at UCLA. He also spent 12 years as an editor at Medgadget. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Barad. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So, Could you start us off by just telling us about your background and what led to your interest and specifically, as I've just announced, in pediatric orthopedic surgery? I'd love to hear about that. It's been an interesting road. I didn't always plan on being a physician, actually. I started out my career in video games. So I've been programming Ah. my, my whole life. I've always been very passionate about video games and how they're made. I even had the opportunity to work at Activision when I was in high school and have a game credit with them. But I have a family member with a chronic illness, an autoimmune illness, and, and they got very sick sort of as I was finishing up high school. And I just started to wonder if there was a way to use software and technology, not necessarily for entertainment, but to help people, especially ones with medical issues. So I actually discovered a major at UC Berkeley called biomedical engineering, where you use technology to help people. So I pivoted from computer science to bioe, which I studied at Berkeley, with this goal to invent healthcare technology. And as I was nearing graduation from college, I still didn't really know how to get started with that. So I sought advice from a mentor, Henry Lin, who is a gastroenterologist. And he told me that if you want to invent something, you simply need to understand what the problem you're trying to solve is. And (laughs) it's it's pretty simple advice, but I think people often lose sight of that. And he strongly felt that a great way to understand medical problems was to be a physician. So I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. And kind of did like a Jedi mind trick on me and somehow convinced (laughs) me to go to medical school. So I spent a year doing research on on rat intestines and I actually collected rat flatulence for my research. So if you ever have any questions on on rat farts, I'm your guy. And, you know, I was ultimately able to get into med school at UCLA. And then I stayed there to do my orthopedic surgery training. And that's really where I started to experience kind of the problem that we're tackling at OSVR firsthand, which is how we train and assess our healthcare professionals with their technical skills. I'll get into exactly what I was seeing a bit later, but one of my other observations is that adult medicine is a bit messy. There are a lot of competing priorities. I love it, but you know, you have, you know, patients, money, competition, egos. Everyone seems like they're kind of like trying to do something different. And then uh, I stumbled on pediatric orthopedics. And when you're taking care of children, it's a mission-driven endeavor. At the end of the day, everybody's highest priority is taking care of kids. And I found that to be completely exhilarating. You know, waking up in the morning, knowing exactly what you wanted to do, and everybody you're working with on the same page, it's all they care about is helping children. I ended up training and specializing in pediatric orthopedics at Harvard and Boston Children's Hospital, which is an incredible experience, and then ultimately coming out to Stanford to do their biodesign medical innovation fellowship. And it was really just throughout this whole journey that I was actually 
encountered VR very early in its development with the Oculus DK1 and was able to combine my passions of healthcare and video games and actually co-found Oso VR and started in October 2016. And on weekends, I do pediatric orthopedic trauma at UC Davis Medical Center. That's awesome. So clinically, my background is pediatrics. So I've, I've worked in a pediatric ER and trauma and, and urgent care, PICU as well. So you already have a special place in my heart <laughs> being a pediatric. Right back at you. <laughs> we should do the secret handshake. I know, but nobody <laughs> can see it. It does exist, everybody. <laughs> I would love to hear what you, you were mentioning about, you know, this creation of Oso VR and, and where this came from. You know, what was the spark to create this? Because I'm really curious to hear, you know, what problem this solves and how are we doing it before? Yeah, and I'm really curious to hear your own experience. But, you know, it really, it wasn't any one thing, but sort of a series of repetitive experiences where I really started to realize that there was a major gap when it comes to training and assessment for technical skills in healthcare, so procedures mm. and surgery. And I was incredibly fortunate at the opportunity to work at some of the top hospitals in the world. Yet, I would be in the operating room with a patient under anesthesia, and we would get stuck in a procedure. And I would be asked to scrub out and go to the computer and Google what to do, oh, wow. uh, basically. So finding an instruction manual or YouTube video even, or a video on a service called ViewMedi, or you know, find a sales rep to, to help us. And it, it, was, it was happening a fair amount. Obviously not all the time. You know, uh, Surgeons are incredible at what they do, and, but enough yeah. that I, was, I thought that there was a growing problem. So I started to look into it and I, I found some kind of key trends and then some data to back that up. So I really was seeing three core problems. The first is there's simply too much to learn. So in a way, we're victims of our own success. Accelerating science and technology, which has been an incredible accomplishment, is actually creating a unique challenge where it's expanding the library of procedures that healthcare professionals are expected to know how to do at a moment's notice. So I always tell this story, it's become famous now, but I was just eating lunch one day when I was paged and called to the zoo to operate on a gorilla, which I was... You know, I cannot emphasize how unprepared I was for that, right? Is that true, Dr. Barad? <laughs> the, the only surgery where we had to evacuate a few times because the gorillas wake up very violently wow. from anesthesia. But that is 100% true. And obviously that only happens like once in a career. But, you know, <laughs> it's a spectrum. And on some level every day, people are experiencing their own gorilla experience where it's, hey, this is a surgery I've never seen before, never done before. And now I have not that much time to prepare for it. The second part of the problem is, modern surgery is a lot more complicated than surgery and procedures of the past. So technology, which has made surgeries safer, more minimally invasive, more repeatable and consistent, tend to be more complicated and have longer learning curves. So in general, newer procedures like robotics, navigation, patient-specific implant and guides and minimally invasive techniques will have learning curves in the range of 50 to 100 cases, whereas traditional surgery might be more like 10 to 20 cases. So, you know, like an order of magnitude potentially increasing length in the learning curve, but the way that we train hadn't changed to keep up. And then the final piece of, of the puzzle is, an almost complete lack of assessment of technical skills in healthcare, pretty much across the board. So 
in my whole career up to this point, the only time I've been objectively evaluated. Now we're constantly evaluated subjectively, right? Like how do people feel about our ability to perform, but objective, consistent evaluation. There was one time where I was interviewing for a position and they had me play the board game operation and they asked me to remove a plastic piece without buzzing, which I was able to do. And I'm very proud of that, but you know, I think we can do better. And, you know, on on the nursing side or the mid-level side, it's, you know, in-servicing is is the main thing we have, right? And we know how those go. You show up, you grab a slice of pizza, you sign in, maybe you touch a needle or something like that and walk out of the room. It's not a very comprehensive training experience and you have to be there physically. So what is the effect of all of these dynamics? I want, is it like, okay, I, I was seeing these things firsthand, but you know, how is this affecting our healthcare system and patients? And so I started looking at some of the data behind it. And one of the first questions I wondered is, well, does surgical skill even matter? Like, right, obviously intuitive, we're like, you know, you would assume a better surgeon with better results, but there's not actually a lot of research on that. But there was a groundbreaking study in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2013 that is frequently cited in sort of the simulation and surgical education world that showed that not only do better surgeons have pretty much every single outcome or metric is better, but the difference between outcomes for low-skilled or high-skilled surgeons can be quite large. So one of the metrics they saw is that lower-skilled surgeons had a five times higher mortality rate than their higher-skilled counterparts. So, you know, how is this affecting patients? Pretty significantly. The other thing I looked at is, well, how good are we doing right now at training surgeons? And so there's a really incredible study from in 2017 that came out of University of Michigan from Brian, a surgeon named Brian George. And he looked at after 14 years of education, right? So this is you know, college, med school, internship, residency. How are we doing? What is the ability of these people through this whole pathway to operate on their own? What they found is that for even the most common procedures, 31% of residency graduates still could not operate without some kind of supervision or assistance, which is a massive number and is getting worse over time. And so we're seeing all of that. And then now you throw COVID in the mix and now everything has just, you know, gone off the rails where we've lost a significant amount of training time for surgeons in training and surgeons in practice, because you haven't been able to operate on as many cases. You can't go to remote courses anymore and you can't go to these large conferences, which is another training opportunity for us. So it was, you know, seeing all of that, that I encountered virtual reality very early on. And when I tried the technology, I I was like, oh my God, this can solve this problem. You can use it anytime and anywhere. You can use your hands in a realistic way. You can, for the first time, get objective, consistent assessment. And you can train as a team and train remotely. And I think this is something that people often forget is that, you know, I was just talking to my surgical team the other day. Is, is There's a lot of like talk about surgeons and, you know, how amazing my surgeon is, but they're doing a piece of the puzzle, but it's a team sport. You have on average like nine people in the room, right? Anesthesiologist, anesthesiology resident, surgeon, first assist, surgical tech, you have the circulator, you have the radiology tech, a lot of people that it takes to get a surgery done and you all have to coordinate and work together. And so that ability to train as a team is something that we just really haven't had the ability to do up until now. And you could do that with this technology. So I came up with this concept for Oso VR built the prototype myself because my gaming background, then I met my co-founder on, on the internet, you know, and I had some money saved up from my bar mitzvah. I was able to pay him to sort of like spruce up what we built <laughs> and that generated some investor interest. And uh, we founded the company officially in October of 2016. And it's been a, a wild ride. Congratulations. That's fantastic. So if I was the user, if I was the end user in Oso VR. 
How does that work? What would I experience? Well, I think the first part of the experience when it comes to OSOVR to understand is that a lot like pediatrics, we're a mission-driven organization. I wanted to bring that same kind of energy. So, you know, what you're experiencing is being a part of that mission, which is to improve patient outcomes with better education and assessment, increase the adoption of higher value medical technology like robotics, and then democratizing access to surgical education all around the world. So in terms of tactically, what you're doing is you're taking a headset like the Oculus Quest 2 and you're putting it on your head. I have it right here. I could show it to you. Yeah. And suddenly you're in a virtual environment where you could select from a number of different procedures or parts of procedures or troubleshooting scenarios and complications that you'd like to train on. You can view your performance and also get guidance on how to improve that performance. So there's some automated coaching in there as well. And you also have the opportunity to train with your team or train with a coach from anywhere in the world. And so you basically kind of select the piece of content that you'd like to train in, and then you're in a virtual operating room. You have your your hands in there, and you have your instruments or your surgical trays and the patient and all of your capital equipment and everything, and you're running through these procedures. So it could be an orthopedic trauma procedure. It could be aortic aneurysm repair endovascularly. It could be a total joint replacement could be a thoracic surgical procedure with navigated lung technology. So there's, we have somewhere near nearly a hundred different surgical training modules currently that you could train on. And, you know, we're, our goal is to be producing anywhere from over a hundred by the end of the year at once. Part of what we bring to the table is a scale since there are so many different kinds of procedures that we need to train people on anything from putting an IV to complex robotic surgery. And we want there to just be a centralized repository where you can go to for all of your training and assessment needs. And so how have those outcomes been for you? Like, what have you observed and collected you know, now that you've got, I assume, lots of surgeons that have gone through this in this training, and are they performing better? What's the effectiveness that you, you were able to see? That's a really great question because, you know, I effectively walked away from a full-time career as an academic surgeon to start this company, which is was a really big deal for me and a difficult decision. But I continue to be so passionate about solving this problem. I think this is one of the existential problems facing healthcare today around the world. That being said, I didn't want to take such a leap for a technology that didn't actually work. VR is very cool. There's a lot of novelty to it and wow factor, but that's not enough. It needs to, as you say, improve surgical performance and ultimately improve how patients do, which is which is our goal and our mission. So we've been commissioning a number of independent studies from academic medical centers. So the first published study came out of UCLA which was published in the Journal of Surgical Education in January 2020, where they looked at 20 trainees, half were trained in OSOVR and then assessed, and then half were trained traditionally. And then they went on to a test surgical procedure. And what they found is that the individuals that trained with OSOVR had performance scores that were 230% higher than those in the traditional training group. It was a 10-point difference, so a pretty massive boost. The second level one randomized clinical trial was published, came out of University of Illinois at Chicago and published in a top five orthopedic journal called CORE. And that looked at the ability to perform a surgery without supervision, which is, mm. like I said, one of those metrics that is quite high right now for residency graduates. And what they found is that traditionally trained residents, about 25% of those could get through a procedure without meaningful supervision. 
But when you instituted OSO VR for training assessment, that went up to 78%. So it was a 306% improvement in the ability to, to perform procedure without supervision. And we have, we have a number of other studies that are currently being submitted for publication. Everything has shown a significant improvement when training with this technology, which is really exciting. And even some of the studies are really sort of a little science fiction to me where they're putting motion trackers on surgeons doing surgery and then surgeons training in VR. And, and what they found is you can't tell the difference which one's which. It's just like it's it's getting the fidelity of the experiences is getting quite high. So that's some some pretty cool stuff that's out there. I think what's important at this point, you know, we have enough data that we can say confidently that OSO VR works to improve surgical performance. And we are making an assumption, you know, based on the data in the New England Journal of Medicine, that that performance will tie to better patient outcomes and surgical efficiencies. But that is sort of the next stage of our research where we really un- want to understand, okay, how is this technology actually affecting patients, which is something we're looking at now, which is really exciting. But I think another important thing to point out is that it's what I believe the results of these studies are not just that like, hey, VR works. Certainly VR has the potential to work, but it's the way that simulation is done at OSO VR and the unique group of experts we've been able to put together that is the reason why you're seeing such positive impact in these published studies. And that's great outcomes. That's something you have got to be really proud of. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible. And it's very interesting. I've never really been in a position where, you know, there's a technology that I was involved in creating and then an independent group is going to go study it. And in the back of my head, I'm like, well, what if it doesn't work? <laughs> you know, like I, I feel very confident about it, but it was amazing to see the results come in. And, you know, I won't lie, I teared up a little bit. It was, it was very exciting. That is very exciting. And you went out and it did work, right? We always got to think about that other side of the coin. So what do you think then, you know, in your opinion about, you know, VR in medical training and its use. And more specifically, one thing I think about, because I hear VR a lot more, and I'm hearing a lot more about simulations largely because of COVID, right? And how that's affected how we practice in healthcare. But do you imagine that we will be seeing a lot more of VR or is that just a symptom of COVID happened and we had to find another way, but we wouldn't have been here this this year doing this? I think that's an excellent question. From a macro point of view, there are still open questions around what COVID-related behaviors are here to stay and in what areas are we going to return sort of to pre-COVID era. And that's what's described as the so-called new normal. And so that being said, when it comes to training and assessment, as we discussed, we were already in sort of crisis mode before COVID. And this has just accelerated that transformation. If you look at the papers in the literature, like Brian George's paper, what he said is that we were heading towards an unsustainable future for surgical education and that simulation is the only way to break this vicious cycle and create what is called sort of a virtuous cycle. And, and there's been a lot of research in, out of Canada as well in what's called competency-based training. So I strongly believe that you know VR training and assessment is here to stay, and this is just sort of accelerating the adoption, but it's it was already a very big need. That being said, it's still not just... It's like, oh, hey, like VR is here. Like you need to actually execute to make sure that this is a successful kind of distribution of this new technology. And and part of that is the ability to generate the content. That's like the biggest challenge. And so, you know, that's where our underlying technology, which we've spent millions of dollars developing in years, is the ability to automate this content creation in a way that is clinically validated, like we just discussed, and also incredibly high fidelity. That is also 
can run on standalone VR, which is the Oculus Quest and Quest 2. This is a a really non-trivial thing that we've put together a team consisting of Oscar and Emmy winners from leading studios like Industrial Light and Magic, Apple, Microsoft, and many more that rivals that of, of gaming and movie studios that has built this technology that allows us to create this content at scale. Because you know, if you're working at, say, Kaiser Permanente or Geisinger or Northwell, every hospital is going to use a different central line system, or they're going to have a different technique for how to minimize line-related infections. And so you need to be able to create thousands and millions of different modules to service all of the different kind of institutions and providers and, and what their particular practice is and how they like to train. So that is ultimately what OsoVR is, is, is it is... VR surgical training content at scale, where we're going to have every procedure available where you can train at any time and also get assessed. That's one of the powers of our team of now 70 people, and we're going to hit 100 uh, by the summer. Congratulations on that. Earlier, you mentioned, you said, you know, you had a mentor and you talked about this idea, you know, simply but powerfully, right? We have to identify the problem that we're trying to solve. So our audience, largely we have students, we have people that are early in their healthcare profession. What would be your advice to them about meeting the challenges of this moment now, but even any challenge that they feel like they're encountering in their profession and how do they approach that? You know, that they could be the ones right now thinking this problem exists and I have an idea, but I don't Oh no! How do, how do we do that? What would be your advice to that person listening now? Well, I'll share two pieces of sort of inspirational advice that was shared okay. with me, and then one piece of practical advice. So the first is I had a fellowship interview in Toronto at the, the Hospital for Sick Kids, and I sat down with the director there, and he looked at my application, and he looked at me. He's like, "Okay, clearly you're like a different kind of applicant. Like you're you're kind of odd." So I'm not even going to interview you. I'm just going to give you some advice. I was like, oh, okay. I have no idea where this is going. And he told me not to worry about what I thought success was classically or what other people's expectations were for me, but to just pursue my passion. And if I did that, success would eventually find me. And there was a moment when I was doing this program that I dreamt about being at for a long time at Stanford. And I, I had this decision I had to make between dropping out of Stanford and running with Oso or, or staying with that full-time academic career. And, and that advice is what led to my decision. I decided what I was truly passionate about was solving this problem, despite it being a huge risk and not what an expectation would be for normal success. And ultimately, I, I mean, I, I couldn't be happier with how that's turned out. The second piece of advice I'll give was an activity I did as a leadership development for my fraternity, actually, in college, funny enough. And it was called the tap of leadership. And in this exercise, you're asked to sit down on the ground, close your eyes. And when you feel a tap on your shoulder, you stand up. And I was waiting there for some time and someone taps me on my shoulder, finally stand up. And they had you guess which instructor was the person who tapped someone first. And then they said, well, the person who got tapped first, raise your hand. And you know, some guy raised his hand. They asked him, who tapped you? And this guy said, I did. And my mind was completely blown. This guy realized that no one was going to tap him unless he did something about it and just tapped himself on the shoulder and had that kind of realization. And when it comes to innovation, there's no degree or permission slip that someone's going to give you 
to go out and try and solve a problem. It's something that you need to decide that you're just going to, you're just going to try and do it and see what happens and create something from nothing. But it is, especially when you're in like engineering or medicine, these very kind of academic tracks where there are hoops you jump through and steps you go through and very prescribed journeys. It's, it's very unintuitive for people. They're just waiting. It's like, what's the degree or the program I need to do so that I can be an entrepreneur and innovator. So don't be afraid to just stand up and try and solve a problem. Now, these are kind of like inspirational, motivational things that were incredibly helpful to me, but what do I actually do, right? Like, how do I execute on that? So while I did drop out of Stanford Biodesign, I learned a lot from my time there. And they have created a process around innovation where it certainly is still a a bit of an art form and it is a lifelong discipline, but it is a great way to get started. And they have a lot of material on the website and they have an amazing textbook with a lot of anecdotes of some of the great breakthroughs in healthcare and how need-based innovation are the underlying drivers and, and how you can practice that methodology to, you know, you may have a thousand ideas, right? So you need to somehow filter through them to decide which one is the one you're going to dedicate potentially five to 10 years of your life to, right? And that's a very big deal to make that kind of decision. So highly recommend checking out the Stanford Biodesign Program website. There are also other biodesign programs popping up at UCLA and Texas Medical Center that are also very interesting and exciting and have some content as well. Dr. Barad, that was amazing. Thank you so much for joining us and for the information. Oso VR sounds exciting. That advice was amazing. Thank you a million times. Oh, thank you guys. I, I am inspired on a daily basis by what Osmosis does and also this podcast and getting the word out about innovation in healthcare and, and education, especially. Education and communication have never been more important than they are now. I think that's just like all too obvious to us all on a daily basis. So thank you for the work that you do. I agree. Thank you. I'm Jonna Emil. Thanks for checking out our show today. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.